Assalamualaikum. Hello and welcome to Just Muslim. On this week, we'll be talking about the Muslim ban, the fallout, and what can we actually do in the wake of the Trump presidency. We'll also have some thoughts on what Anjum is angry about this week, and we'll be talking with Tina Sinha, who's a staff attorney with the Asian Law Caucus office in San Francisco. All right. First on our list of topics today here at Just Muslim is the Muslim ban. This was pretty pretty massive story when this whole situation came out. It was kind of fascinating how um, during the weekend that this whole thing started playing out, we were actually in Seattle to purchase a car, and uh, that was pretty fascinating experience. You go on vacation, you're exploring the uh, the famous market down there. And uh, there's a protest. <laughs> there's a protest, or what is it, Resist Fascism? And it's a whole organization. And so we stopped to watch them and really to give voice to their, or support to their voice. And so, of course, you have the, the non, the Trump supporters. And there was a gentleman, or a couple of gentlemen, mm-hmm. who were revving their bikes, their motor uh, motorcycles, mm-hmm. to drown out the voice of the protesters. Then there was another man who started yelling that they were racist because they said they needed white allies. And so in that moment, you know, all I could think was just like, shut up! And I literally yelled at him, shut up! She can say whatever she wants to say, um, which is hilarious, and I'm glad I said something. What perhaps he needs to be told is you don't even understand racism if you're telling someone who's a person of color that they're racist uh, by saying that they need a white ally. Do you even understand the need for that term? Well, and it was very strange in that whole exchange because there were this was like a Latino man screaming at a Latino woman uh-huh. to basically shut up. Yep. And it's like, do you not understand? I guess like what people of your own culture experienced in coming to this country and the various things that they had to deal with Mm -hmm. then as we kind of progressed through the day we just decided we're gonna you know join the march um, as they're marching around and we we continue with the march as well and then we start getting updates out of Seattle um, uh, that there are just massive protests that are stopping airports and stopping things from functioning and people have really they're like we're not going to leave and then you've got city and public officials coming together and saying basically this isn't right we're going to negotiate and try to get these people through and then we saw in the days that that to come that those protests were very sustained people were like nope we're just going to stand here we're going to make a stand we're not going to allow this to happen and then the courts began to speak out about it i mean we're now at the juncture in which trump is revising that ban and the newest updates are indicating that the same countries are going to be targeted. But um, if you've got a valid visa or a green card, and this is, you know, we'll see what the update ends up being, um, that uh, those people will be allowed in, but then other people will not be allowed in, or refugees are certainly going to be cut as a result. I I just think, for me, this whole situation is really fascinating because, um, and this is a story that I think most of my friends don't know about me, uh, which is that my great-grandparents were refugees of war um, from Burma. And they had to travel from Burma back to India. And um, they wouldn't have survived if it wasn't just, like, common people helping them. They had to travel at night so they wouldn't be seen. Um, they had to be supported by local populations that were interested in helping them. And, you know, I, I just was thinking to myself today that 
I wouldn't even be here today if it weren't for those kind people going out of their way to help my family basically survive. Um, and I think one of the things to really think about as we're discussing this subject matter is just the stories and the narratives of all of these people who are affected. I think it's like crazy that there's, you know, voters in this country that are like, we have to do some, something about this. But you just ask them the question, have you ever, you know, sat down and ha heard a refugee and what they've experienced? And the answer you're going to get is no. So maybe like one of the things that we need to start thinking about is we need to create venues in which people who don't know about these stories can come and listen to them at the very least. Because I think that, you know, one of the, the keyest things is that, uh, and I hear this from a lot because we, we both work in rural Oregon here, is that, you know, like there's aspects of the population in rural America that don't feel heard, but then there's aspects of the population in rural Oregon who don't have access to the same resources and information of people in the bigger cities as well. I think that's true, and, and I, I think that those educational forums are really, really important. And I often feel like, I go to a lot of these, right, and I often feel like the people that are there, you're like preaching to the choir. Those people don't need it as much as the people that are refusing to be there, mm -hmm. right? And so I often am torn between, yeah, this is something, but is it the thing mm -hmm. that we need, right? How do we go into communities where they want none of this, right? They think they're right and get them to listen, you know, and even getting them to listen is hard because white guilt is real, mm -hmm. right? You know, you say something, all you do is tell a story about yourself and then all of a sudden I feel like you're blaming me. Well, that's not what I said, mm -hmm. but it's interesting that you went there. I mean, I think it's really fascinating that you talk about this because just in my class this week, you know, I had a student talk to me about what, uh, systematic oppression is, um, or systemic oppression, rather. Um, and I was like, oh, man, this I, this is a classroom, you know, that's about 90% white. And I was like, how, how do I really explain this? And so I went in and I talked about, you know, how there's impact by policing and then there's impact at a school system level and underfunded resources and all of these various things. But I found myself catching myself and having to explain that, you know, this also happens to, like, white students. And I was like, why in my head am I comparing this? Like... Like, I just feel like I have to make it real for, like, the, you know, to to, to, to show balance or something. And I was like, but why? Like, why am I doing that to myself? I hate it. I hate doing that. Like, I should just be able to talk about the thing um, that black people are experiencing, you know, um, without a comparison so that, you know, these other, these white students would be able to understand it. And I think that's one of the things that happens is that, you know, like, when you have to start self-censoring yourself... Um, because of the audience that you're dealing with, that could be a, a real challenge, especially when you're an educator of, like, social justice mindset, and you're just like, hmm, like, um, I'm really, I'm trying to, like, I want y'all to understand this, but then I don't want to, like, be, like, called out because I didn't, like, provide a real-world example in comparison to the grand majority of the students here. And I thought what was interesting, actually, from all of that discussion when I was, like, talking about all that is that a student raised his hand. He's like, you know, Professor, I think you've done a great great job of explaining it. Um, but he's like, you also got to add in, like, the prison industrial complex as well. And I was like, dude, like, this is the kind of discussions that I, you know, really want to have within this class. So it was great that other students, like, jumped in and started talking about that stuff. Yeah, and so, and, and then, you know, aside from that, like, the Muslim man, the fall, what was the fallout of that? There were, of course, people that were not allowed back in the country 
then, you know, I mean, some brilliant people, you know, not that anyone that's not brilliant, you know, doesn't matter. But just to give an example, there are like, you know, professors and engineers and people that really contribute highly to American society that were now allowed back in because of this ban. So then what's the fallout of that? They had to rebook their flights. I'm pretty sure the airline didn't pay for that. So there's like financial fallout for these individuals. Then there's the emotional fallout of I'm now separated from my family, you know, um, and then now thinking forward, if I am someone who has a transnational identity in that I have family, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I was born in another country, which I was, and I have family in another country that are valuable to me, well, am I ever going to see them again? Right. Are they going to be able to visit me? Am I going to be able to visit them? So then these barriers that are creating distance between families and emotional connections that are really important to some people. And I don't have an answer for that. You know, hopefully this, you know, uh, Muslim man 2.0 will be struck down again. I don't know how it's going to work, but I can only imagine the fallout that has occurred because of this, even though it's been you know, struck down by the court, there's still a fallout of, okay, great. I'm, I don't belong here. Right. It's a symbolic gesture of, I don't belong here. And, um, if I don't belong here, then I'm not safe here. Sure. And I think there's also been a tremendous fallout for universities. I mean, I think, uh, we set, we, you know, we're, we're located near Oregon state university and there's a lot of students from Arab countries, um, who go to school there. There's, there's Yemenis, there's Omanis, there's students from Saudi Arabia as well, um, and while some of those countries were not impacted by the ban, um, you know, other countries were. Um, there's certainly several Yemeni students who go to school here. Uh, so it's just like a real challenge, you know, and, and that's a thing, like, um, I think we heard at least one case of a student who wasn't able to come back um, from Oregon State because of the ban. So I think this is like really concerning. Um, you know, it doesn't show the best of America. You know, Amer- like you know, a lot of Arab students get excited about coming to school in America. So doing this really is, um, you know, reinforcing narratives of extremists. To be frank, um, and and so many people have commented on this that like the Trump administration is really reinforcing narratives. And I think in the, I, I don't know where I read the report, but it's like ISIS is like, oh, like Trump's elected. We don't actually need to, need to run propaganda anymore because he's going to create it for us. Mm-hmm. And I think that is crazy. That's really, really crazy. And the fact that like the guy is just not self-aware at all, like no self-awareness at all to know like what he is doing is highly problematic. Um, you know, like, at the time in which he's like talking about, he's like, he's like, we're going to work with Russia to defeat ISIS. And then he's like giving them propaganda for free. Like it's, it's just, it's mind blowingly stupid. <laughs> it's really, really stupid. Like people are like, you know, we're getting ISIS towards the last throws of where they need to be. And I'm like, that's fantastic. You know, they've ruined so many lives. And then Trump is like, oh, you know, these Muslims and, you know, he doesn't condemn these like racist terror attacks that happen and these mosques and these like even Jewish centers that are being targeted does nothing to condemn them. Um, but then he's like reinstilling narratives that are that are false, essentially. Yeah, and then making stuff up, right? Well, this is comment about a terror attack in, like, Finland or something? Sweden. 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 And they, the Swedish people were like, what? That didn't happen. Oh, but there was a terror attack by <laughs> neo-Nazis against a refugee center in Sweden. That actually didn't oh, happen. Oh, my God. So. I just can't. And I think that's, you know, there was this hilarious article. I can't remember 
what major newspaper published it, but it was about, you know, Earth is in danger of people who don't believe in facts anymore. And that's mm-hmm. really what I see is like, oh, I want to go to Breitbart News for my news. And I think it's just hilarious, not hilarious, uh, sad that we live in an age where all of us, and this goes for liberals as well, that we live in a kind of like a fishbowl and we only take in the information that confirms what we already think. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, any kind of challenge to that is seen as a, like an attack. Mm-hmm. And we react so viscerally to it instead of just sitting down and listening to it. And hey, I'm guilty of it too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that it's an issue and that we all liberal or conservative in the middle, whatever you are, we need to work on that. Well, I mean, I, and I think I, I completely agree with that point. And that's like not even just restrictive to like politics. It's in all the things that we do. What One of the things I've seen is that, you know, because I used to coach debate. Uh, I used to coach a speech and debate team back in, in Florida and, and other places as well, is that some of the students that have come up to the system, um, and it really, I think, highly depends upon parenting, um, is that some people, you know, you, you hear this term in sports, they're, they're coachable or they're not coachable. And when they're coachable, they're able to take the criticism that you offer or the criticism or the disagreement that you offer and take it with it and really reflect upon it and then grow from it. Um, and then what I think what you've seen is like this significant trend of like you offer up criticism or an argument that is counter to the prevailing narrative and people are just like, no. No, that's so wrong. How dare you? It's like an insult to their character. And it's like we have, as a nation, have forgotten how to just assess arguments uh, and assess quality of argumentation. And this is just a random plug right now. Take an argumentation class at your local community college. It will help you with this. But we've, we've lost the ability to really separate ourselves from our arguments we feel so entrenched and so attached to the argument that we're just so unwilling to let it go when we believe things a certain way and that is just deeply problem problematic because we won't be able to you know come up with brilliant policy solutions you know in two years and four years from now if we're never able to truly analyze what is the strongest argument here what are the downsides of doing this what are the positives um how do we take that idea and not just make it ours but make it about our community and again this goes beyond conservative and liberal yeah. a really good example of that we were at a rally yesterday and someone was talking about president obama was you know much more pro immigration reform and much more uh, positive for the community and he may have talked about immigration reform mm-hmm. but he the the number of deportations is increased quite a bit from the previous administration to the Obama administration, right? Just like the use of drones mm-hmm. to kill people, just kind of like make a decision unilaterally to just kill people, mm-hmm. assassinations, if you will, uh, increased exponentially from the previous administration to the Obama administration. And so this is why both conservatives and liberals need to sit down and think about what it is that they're supporting and why. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think if you look at a lot, a lot of like, you know, um, really solid Muslim social justice activists that work on a grassroots level, and this is kind of the, the problem, um, is that when people 
get into you know their high-rise offices they're not able to realize this but the people that are working on the ground in the communities like in you know jackson heights fahad ahmed and and in other local communities in san francisco when you're working on the ground level you're seeing really the impact of these policies you know when someone who used to come and visit you just no longer comes and you find out they've been deported that's like the solid hard-hitting fact of the situation and I think that some things that happen is that, you know, people are like, oh, you know, but it's not happening to me or, um, but, you know, he did all of these other wonderful things. Like, I can acknowledge that he did some good things. You know, there was many situations that he handled in a very empathetic manner. Um, but then there were a bunch of situations in which he didn't, which created like that, that dissonance for a lot of the people that were like more oriented towards Bernie Sanders in the run up to the election because there were just things that they, you know, like Obama had political capital at the start of his presidency and he used all of that political capital on Obamacare. And then after it seemed like the other or the other aspects of the domestic agenda kind of fell by the wayside. Um, you know, I think in his latter years, he realized he needed to do more on, on, on civil justice or, or criminal justice reform, but that was like, he just didn't get to it or wasn't able to do enough about it. And now it's all gone by the wayside. And even if you're looking at states right now, they're not really doing anything to change anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was kind of a tangent from what we were talking mm-hmm. about, and I think an important one. And so, again, we were talking about the fallout, right? Mm-hmm. And so as a counselor, I think of the emotional mental health fallout from all of this and so i'm gonna i'm probably gonna talk about this every time we're on here but self-care is so so important any regular day but especially in the wake of everything that's been happening in the past few years so what are you doing for self-care is the question that i would like to ask you and if something doesn't immediately come to mind then i'm going to encourage you that it is imperative that you choose something and that could be anything It could be going for a walk or running or exercising. It could be cooking yourself an amazing, extravagant dinner that's like comfort food to you. You could be watching a movie. It could just be sitting still for a weekend and not going out and being a busybody. Um, It's really different for everybody. But I think just like we talked about in our last episode, I'm going to encourage everybody to take regular news and social media breaks because you can drive yourself crazy with trying to keep up with everything and taking in all this negative information. So I would encourage everyone to take regular breaks and step away from any type of media. So now the question is, what do we do, right? We get that question a lot, like, what do we do? What do we do? Um, This is happening, that is happening. And this has been a question for a while, right? It's not even because of Trump, but there was bad stuff. There's always bad stuff happening. So the question is, what can we do? Yeah, I think in the wake of, you know, this question, because, you know, Senator Ron Wyden had this town hall just down the street from us, like a week or two ago and he was talking about you know like what like you know like a lot of people were asking what do we do i think this is like the really critical time within the trump administration where we really focus on creating um and i think a lot of people are like focused on just the reactionary um sort of work to do like i think I think all of these things have roles, right? Like, so protests have a role. Protests indefinitely had a role in helping to shut down the Muslim ban. Good. But we also need to create, or, sorry, and we also need to create, uh, you know, proactive efforts that shed more of a light on our governance, not only just on the federal level, but also on the state and local level. So if your city is not the most transparent city, 
work to make it a transparent city. Um, if your if your local advocates aren't doing enough in terms of education or you know the allocation of the budget to maybe solve homelessness within your city, go run or get on the board so that you will be able to change those things. Like, um, I think Angela, you just went to a uh, a housing. Yeah, I went to a housing advisory board meeting and so they're tasked with the large budget of how are they going to support fair housing and such projects in the area and so it's really important I mean these meetings are open to the public Mm -hmm. right and so if they know that there's individuals from the public that are there hopefully it's going to keep them honest right Mm -hmm. and luckily as a result of this meeting two very worthy programs that are helping individuals in need with lower um lower incomes were funded Mm -hmm. um but it's really important and it was sad it was only me and two other people from the public and i wish there would have been more people Mm -hmm. well i think when we look at activism you know, the activism cannot begin and end at the ballot box. It, it's really critical that that doesn't happen. I think a lot of more people are sort of waking up and then realizing, oh, you know, we should have been doing something this whole time. And I think that's actually particularly frustrating for a lot of criminal justice reform advocates, uh, especially like activists from Black Lives Matter who are like, we were in the streets, you know, for these two years. Where were y'all at? Like, we were waiting for y'all to catch up to us. Uh, and I know for me, I'm like, you know, like, where were all the white allies before Trump? Like, you know, we were in the streets, we were lobbying, we were advocating for these things. How come all of these white allies were not calling up their senators um, and their congresspeople to demand criminal justice reform? Um, And I think that's, you know, I think that that frustration is real and it's honest. Um, But like now's the time to reintegrate yourself into those movements that have already started, right? If there's criminal justice reform happening within your city, Go to the people that are doing it. Go to the people who have been working on a grassroots level and ask them, how can I support you? What can I do? Um, and and understand, too, that that takes a commitment, okay? <laughs> That's the really critical thing. You can't just say, I want to support you. I support you. And then you do literally nothing else. <laughs> you literally do nothing else, okay? You can't do that. If, you're, if you want to make an honest and earnest effort, to go out and lead some reform efforts, then you need to make that solid commitment by doing work. And I think a lot of people don't realize this about doing social justice work. There are going to be a lot of times in which the work you're doing is boring. It's going to be monotonous, but it's necessary. Okay, it's absolutely necessary. Um, I remember when I was working for the Center for Constitutional Rights and we were working on a class action case um, to help hundreds of women of color uh, in New Orleans. Um, I had to do the monotonous task of searching a database, downloading the document as a PDF, um, finding and going through another database, downloading another document as a PDF, and then sitting in Adobe. I don't know, it was an acrobat or, or writer or whatever it was. Um, I was using Nitro PDF at the time and highlighting each document so that when a court was going to be looking at all of these documents, which ended up being like 500 and something documents, it was just easy for them to realize what injustice was going on. And that took a long time. And it wasn't just me. It was like a team of us, like four other people working on this. Or, um, yeah, four other people working on this. And we just did this day in and day out. And that's the price of justice, y'all. 
I think that's a, a something people don't realize is that the price of justice is you have to give up your time. You sometimes have to do things that are not the most fun and sexiest things to do. It's like, you know, I talked to a politician today. Well, the, the prep to get to that meeting with the politician requires a lot of work. Um, so there just needs to be a real commitment by people that I'm going to do the work. Zahir? Yeah. Did you just say the S word, sexy? We don't say that. We're Muslim. Oh, man. Oh, man. I'm so sorry. The Haram police are going to be all over us. (laughs) I guess we never cared about that. I mean... So, so a lot of what Zaka said is true, and it can be overwhelming, right, if you're not used to doing this work. So, uh, fortunately, there are organizations that you can join as a member that already have those structures in place, that already have those processes in place. So, the NAACP is a great one, and don't think if you're not black, you can't join yes you can okay um this is a collective effort and if one of us falls behind all of us fall behind okay and if one of us progresses all of us benefit okay um you can also join care the council on american islamic relations you can join the aclu and there's also smaller local whether it's local to your county or local to your state organizations that are promoting racial equity um, or socioeconomic equity that you can join so if, if doing these things individually sounds just overwhelming, then join one of these organizations. It's mm-hmm. very helpful. And I think another critical thing to, to say with regards to this is that this isn't just about if you're young. Uh-huh. Okay. Because um, if you're older, you're more experienced, We everyone can benefit from that knowledge and that hard work. Um, I remember at when I worked at the Asian Law Caucus, and you're going to hear from a, a colleague of mine later in the show, uh, you know, there's this guy who used to work at the Office of Civil Rights, and he was volunteering at the Asian Law Caucus. Um, and he, he had been, you know, an attorney for any number of years, and he kept, uh, he would sit next to me, he's like, you gotta work there, man, you gotta work there. Um, but uh, one of the things I really appreciated was, like, he came back to work at his roots. He's like, I worked here several years ago, and now I'm just doing this in my, volu- like, my time to volunteer, and I just want to help out this wonderful organization. So it doesn't matter how old you are. I think, you know, he was in his 60s. Um, you can always come back and help somebody. Yeah, we need your wisdom. Mm-hmm. We need your, you know, um, rallying cry. We need your support. I mean, there's nothing more comforting, I think, than having someone older than you tell you it's going to be all right because you're like, oh man, they know because they've been there, right? I think mm-hmm. it's really, really important that we have cross generational support of all social justice and equity. So there's a lot we can do in the wake of Trump, right? Even if it's quote-unquote just, and I say that in quotes because it's not just, and I'm not trying to minimize it. If it's it's social media activism, right? It's it's interacting with people on social media and be like, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Why do you think this way? Also knowing that no arguments have really ever been won on social media, mm-hmm. so be okay with walking away after a certain point or posting articles to get people to think differently. That's really, really important. And so that kind of segues into our conversation with Tina. So let's hear from Tina and what she has to say. Hi, Tina. Could you please first tell us about what our rights are with regards to law enforcement and how to deal with them? So the answer to that question really depends on a person's immigration status. But for now, I'll talk about what U.S. citizens can do. Um, the most important thing I think to remember when talking with law enforcement is that, and this this goes across contexts, is that Law enforcement in general can lie to you. They can mislead you. They can um, do. They are allowed to do that, and that doesn't. Uh, 
people can't suppress what comes out of people uh, out of statements ba- just because uh, a law enforcement officer lied to them. So the number one thing to or the first thing to remember is that they can lie to you. And what that means is that we should be really careful in our interactions with them. So, for example, if someone is stopped in their car and this is um you know, again, we're talking about situations where people haven't contacted the police for help. It's a the police are, st- are approaching you and stopping you. And if you're a citizen and you're in your car, there are a couple of just uh, co- not common sense things, but there are a couple of things that people should remember. The first is that. If an officer ever asks to search your car, the answer to that is always no. It's a very polite no, but it's always a no. In general, if a law enforcement officer is asking you to search your car, it means that they don't have the right to search your car. And so you're just gifting that to them on a silver platter by consenting to a search. If they have the right to search your car, they're generally not going to ask. They're just going to do it. And the reason why we say that is because even completely innocent looking things in your car, such as a valid prescription or certain books, can look very suspicious to law enforcement. And that can just lead to further questioning, which can just get people in further trouble. So we have a kind of a golden rule that we like to apply to law enforcement stops, and that's ending it, limiting it, and lawyering up. So the first part is ending it if possible. If you can end the interaction, that's always best. And there's a pretty simple way to test whether or not you can leave. And that's to simply ask, officer, am I free to go? And if the officer says, yes, you are, then we generally advise people to say very politely, thank you, officer, I'm going to leave now. And then leave without making any sudden movements. Um, We don't want to give, I mean, we see what's happening across the country with law enforcement um, resorting to excessive force, and we don't want to create a situation where people are going to be in danger. So we say, you know, before you move or do anything when you're around a law enforcement officer, it's generally a good idea to announce what you're about to do. So, and that goes for everything from reaching into your purse to get your ID or opening your glove compartment to get your registration. Always announce what you're doing with your hands and don't make any sudden movements. So that's the ending it portion. So if you can end the interaction by saying, you know, officer, am I free to go? And they say, yes, you can. Then that's the best way to handle the situation. But if you can't, then we advise that people limit it as much as they possibly can. And the way you limit it is by not giving them more than you need to. So, for example, California is not a state where you are required, if you're walking down the street, to have an ID on you. However, if you're driving, then yes, you do have to present your license, registration, proof of insurance. So it depends on the situation, but we advise that people limit the interaction as much as they can. So if they start asking questions such as, you know, do you know why I stopped you? Don't answer that question because that's just a way to get you in further trouble. If they need to tell you why they stopped you, they'll they'll do so. It's not a good idea to sort of guess and give them ammunition. So maybe you'll say, oh, maybe you think you're stopped because you didn't wait a full three seconds at a stop sign before moving forward and they didn't actually catch that. They're stopping you for another reason. You just gifted them another reason to stop you. So that's the limiting it portion and always lawyering up is a good idea. So the other portion of this is we don't want to give them more ammunition to use against you in court. So there's no point in making any statements or talking to them without a lawyer present. And you in California, you have the ability to access a lawyer for free, whether a public defender or other nonprofit organizations that provide legal, legal assistance for free. So there's really no reason not to talk to an attorney before talking with law enforcement. Even if they say, nah, a lawyer will just make it, make it uh, seem as though you're guilty or a lawyer will just complicate things. 
it's really a good idea to talk to a lawyer first. So that's, I mean, the, the, the law around this is convoluted and it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but those are some good solid rules that people across the country can use. Tina, would your advice differ if an individual was dealing with the FBI? The advice does differ. So if a law, so if the FBI comes to visit, I think the first thing for people to remember is that the F, if the an FBI visit doesn't mean that you've done something wrong, and it also doesn't mean that they think you've done something wrong. We see a lot of um, we have a lot of reports of community members, and this has been going on for years, of community members who um, are being approached by the FBI because they want general advice on Iran, or they want general knowledge about what's going on in Yemen, or for some reason they think this person has access to someone they want to eventually talk to who goes to the same masjid that they go to. So there are any number of reasons why someone might be approached by law enforcement, um, by federal law enforcement, such as the FBI, DEA, whatever the case may be. So the first thing is to, as much as you can, not panic about that. The second thing is that this end it, limit it, you know, lawyer up thing that we talked about before, it actually applies here as well. So the worst thing you can do, one of the worst things you can do is invite them inside your home. If the, if a law enforcement officer sees something inside your house that they deem suspicious and it's in their plain sight, they can then use that against you. And what's worse is that FBI officers and even local law enforcement have access to um, these things called suspicious activity reports, which is uh, a way in which they can, people can report suspicious things, quote unquote suspicious things, and put them into a database that's access that's accessible to law enforcement across the country, and data in there can stay for potentially years. So, for example, we've heard and um, <laughs> Zakir, you're very familiar with this because you went through a lot of these SARS um, when you were working with us at Asian Law Caucus. But some of these SARS will say things like, "I heard my neighbors talking in Arab, uh, talking in Arabic, and they're Muslim, and they they are brown men, and they sounded like they were angry about something." And then that then became a suspicious activity report that the FBI then had access to, and those sorts of things, or a, a Muslim-looking man who was playing a flight simulator game, something as simple as that. The FBI, an FBI officer seeing a flight simulator game in your house and reporting that could end uh, could lead to even more visits. So it's important to not let them inside your home, and that's hard for a lot of people to square away with because it's contrary to a lot of our cultures. When people come to our door, it's our culture is that we let, we invite them in warmly, serve them tea, serve them snacks, and you know make them feel comfortable. But this is not a guest coming to visit you just to chit chat. This is a federal law enforcement officer who could be using everything you say and do against you. So it's important for you and your family to keep yourself safe. So what we advise is that if the FBI, if an FBI officer comes to your door, you don't allow them in, to come inside. Instead, you open the door, step outside yourself, and close the door so that they can't peek in, and simply say, um, officer, I do not wish to speak with you right now. If you give me your business card, I will have my attorney contact you. Now, a lot of the times they'll say things like, you know, that's just going to make things more complicated, or you're making it sound, you know, what you're doing is going to make you look really guilty, or I just need to ask you two questions, and then I'll be on my way. None of those things are necessarily true. It could be, but they're not necessarily true because, again, they can lie to you. So it's important to remember that when you're speaking with federal agents, they can lie to you. But if you make a mistake and lie to them about something that they think is important, that could actually end in criminal charges being filed against you. So it's important to stay safe. 
Tina, could you also talk about what people should do if they're in a situation in which they're being bullied? Um, perhaps they have a child that's being bullied at a school. So I think one of the most important things to one of the most important steps to take is to report it. And I think a lot of people have a lot of trouble with that because they think that reporting it necessarily means that it's going to get publicized, which means that it might escalate the situation. And we can't lie, publicizing or bringing attention to an issue could cause further retaliation. But at the end of the day, you can report something that happened to you to the Asian Law Caucus, to CARE, and we can keep that information confidential. So if you're reaching out to an attorney, attorney-client privilege will generally apply, and we'll be able to keep that confidential. And if it's only if the person who's calling us consents to it that we take further steps on it. So it's not as though you report it to an attorney and they get to just run with it and do whatever they want with your case. But it is really important to, re even if uh, someone has no intention of going forward with a complaint and has no intention of doing anything about what they're facing, which is their prerogative, obviously this is happening to them, they're the ones who get to decide what they do with their case. Um, it's important to report it because we do monitor these sorts of things. And just getting this kind of raw data, even if we don't use it and publicize it in um, any official form, it helps us monitor trends of what's going on in the com community. So maybe your case, you won't report it, but then we'll keep more of an eye on the situation in your school or in your area. And then other people will know that we're there and other people may want to report it. But it's really important for us to be able to know what's going on and where it's going on. So it's important to report it. Um, the other thing is that to, just to be aware that there are a lot of resources available for people who are being bullied in schools. And for those who do want to go further and file a complaint or have someone go with them to meet with their school administrators, there's the Asian Law Caucus, there's the various care chapters that are able to do so. And if you're in California, there's actually Governor Brown in September of 26, September of this year signed an AB 2845, which gives us, um, which uh, is the first law that in California that specifically addresses Islamophobia directly. And it's concerned with school bullying. And it lays out a bunch of requirements that the California Department of Education and others have to fulfill in order to protect Arab, Middle Eastern, Muslim, and South Asian students from bullying. So there are resources, and there are other people who are experiencing this too, unfortunately. So it's not as though you're alone in this. And it really just depends on how, how far you're willing to take it. But no matter what stage you're willing to take it to, there's someone you can reach out to who can help. Tina, we just wanted to thank you for joining us on today's show. Anytime. Take care. That was Tina Sinha joining us from the Asian Law Caucus, where she's a staff attorney. On this week is Anjuma's Angry, Anjuma will be discussing her fun experience at a Muslim event recently. Yeah, so like we alluded to earlier in the show, we try to be involved, especially if it's something social justice minded. So we went up to, you know, kind of far of a drive from us, you know, because we are in rural Oregon, but we decided to make the trek up. And it was a conversation focusing on Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. because it is Black History Month. And so I was like, oh man, Muslims want to talk about this. That's awesome. So we went up there and it was all good and well. And, you know, it was honestly good for them for having this event. And it was kind of one of those self-congratulatory events where like you pat yourself on the back and you're like, yep, we're not racist. All right. Um, but like, what do you do with that? Right? Like what are the steps going forward? So one of my questions for the panel was 
how do we address and how do we move forward from racism against blacks, black people, from non black Muslims, right? And the gentleman who answered the question did a great answer. It was very in your face. Like, we need to be there with Black Lives Matter. We all go forward. We all fall back, right? And I loved it. And then the person who was overseeing the event, kind of like the MC, comes on at the very end to make their closing remarks and says, yes, but you know, there is racism in every culture and every group. And I was like, way to kind of minimize the real struggle that is anti-blackness within Muslim communities that are immigrants, right? And I'm just like, what the heck, dude? Why can't we honor that this exists? Why do we have to minimize it, right? Like, what the heck? That made me so mad. I mean, I was expecting it Mm -hmm. because I've grown up in immigrant Muslim communities, right? I'm the child of immigrants. But it just still, to this day, perplexes me. And I think one of the issues is that we kind of are in this... um, really interesting period, I think, in American Muslim communities where the older generation have these traditional values. Many of them are the immigrants that came here and they're holding on to a lot of isms and they're the ones in charge, right? And the youth, you know, basically our age or younger are not involved in the leadership either because the older folks won't let them or because, to be frank, some of our youths just don't care. They don't want to get involved for whatever reason, right? And so then the issue, these issues keep popping up, and it's just so frustrating. I was just like, come on, dude. Come on. Well, I think one of the things that's important to realize about that situation is that, you know, there's this older generation that still still dominates within the mosques. Um, and, you know, we just kind of touched upon being more feeling more empowered to want to make a difference here in society. But, you know, part of it is, I think there's a two-part of that equation, which is, number one, we need to start getting some more younger voices within the mosque um, on boards and stuff, right? Like, it was kind of interesting when we were talking with our local mosque about this, which is, uh, we're like, you know, who's on the board? And they're like, oh, those people aren't really here. (laughs) I was like, how do you have a board that's, like, not active in the mosque? Uh, that's a problem, yeah. I think. I'm just thinking out loud here. But uh, I think a really critical thing is when you look at mosques and the administration and then also the vocalization of said mosques, you've got to get more young people involved. They've got to be put in posi- positions of power where they can actually make significant change and bring about significant change within that mosque. Um, and then two, with regards to uh, the older population, um, if you're not going to get woke... <laughs> then you need to figure out a way to um, get people who are woke in positions where they can help things. Um, and I think in, in addition to that, what that really means is that seed, you got to seed power. Um, you got to seed positions of power so that people can come up. Because um, here's the thing, y'all. Like, in, in every MSA, on every college campus, there are people, there are students that are doing work, that are bringing changes to things. Okay, whether it's their campus whether it's impacting other people on that campus, all that's happening, okay? But then once they graduate, it goes nowhere. It's a complete brain drain um, of our activists when they have all of this, like, energy, and then they're like, well, now what do I do? Okay? And then we kind of, like, socialize them, like, oh, well, you get married. (laughs) 
No, you like you get married and then you just like chill. Marriage and chill. Marriage and chill. Marriage, and chill. Marriage chill, job, dunya. Get some children added into that mix. Mm-hmm. And then you chill. Right. Some more. Okay, and then all of that activism that happened is gone. All of it. And like you gotta think about this on every MSA, on every college campus, there's probably like five to ten really active students. Like where are they going? And what is happening to them? Mm-hmm. I, I would love to see a research study. What happened to the activists of these, like, 10 MSA chapters? It's not all about that. It's not all about the dunya. It's not all about the work you're doing for said institution. It's about the community and how the community is going to be coming up. And, and this is really a multifaceted, multi-layered problem. Um, but I think one of the things that makes me excited is that if you look at the younger generation that's slowly starting to you know, like, kind of take over mosques, mosques or be more active in mosques, you're seeing that anti-blackness actually die down. That's true. That's true. And so um, one of the things that the speaker, in responding to my question, said was, you know, everyone says they're okay with people of other other colors until it comes to marriage. Mm -hmm. And so while people are generation younger may be okay with that, you're still dealing with intergenerational issues within families of conflict and marrying someone who's not brown or Arab or whatever, you know? Um, So there's a lot of work to be done. But I am hopeful, okay, because I think to be fair to these small rural mosques, there's not a huge constituency there, right? So the question becomes, there's not much people to do the work, so then a couple of people just kind of take over everything because they have to, Mm -hmm. right? And then you want things to be done the right way, so you have a hard time letting go of them, right? And I can understand that. So there's there's multiple layers to this, but I think key that I would want to leave everybody with is that challenge challenge the isms in your own personal sphere of influence okay that means your family and then maybe if you're a teacher your classroom or if you work at i don't know ibm within your cohort there etc etc you don't always have to get up on the stage and start yelling that it's wrong right you don't have to go there zero to 100 maybe you want to do that one day maybe you don't just do what you can in your spheres of influence all right, folks, that is our episode of Just Muslim. Thanks for hanging out with us. We'd love to hear from you on Twitter at Podcast and also on our Facebook page. And if you have any questions, let us know. Um, one question I have for you all that are listening is, what do you all do to take care of yourselves? Self-care. Do you have a question for them, Zach? Uh, I'm, I'm right on that same page as well. What do you do to, to take care of yourselves, especially in these times in which there's a lot of trauma surrounding? Yeah. So we can't wait to hear from you, and we will see you next time, or hear you next time. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum